So our speaker this hour is Bart Warren. Bart is married to the former Laura Hanstein, and they have three boys, Ike and Jet, who are twins that are age 12, and Jake, who's age 10. I happen to know that he actually has three more adopted kids by the name of Riley, Madeline, and Luke Pritchard. They are my cousins who live next door to him, and they just kind of swap houses all the time. Uh, they'll walk, Either family walks in and doesn't know how many kids are going to be feeding for supper that night. Um, but Bart has preached for the South Green Street Church in uh, Glasgow, Kentucky, since 2010. He is the vice president of the Warren Christian Apologetics Center, and he serves as associate editor of the journal Sufficient Evidence. He also facilitates courses in apologetics and ethics in the graduate program for the Bear Valley Bible Institute. Uh, he's also working on some schooling of his own. He's working to try to finish up a Ph.D. in philosophy from Southern, you said. So uh, he's a man that is very well qualified to speak to us, uh, give us thoughts on the omnipotence of God. And so we are grateful to have Bart Warren with us here today. And, brother, we're looking forward to the words you bring to us. Preach the word. Well, it is my great pleasure to, to be here. I uh, love this uh, congregation, love the people here, look around the room and see lots of, uh, lots of people that I've known a long time and love a lot, and so uh, thankful for your presence here and very um, appreciative of the whole week to think about uh, 1 Corinthians, the principles there. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about the power of God in this, in this session. God is all-powerful. God can do all things. When considering the importance of the doctrine of omnipotence, which is what we've been assigned to talk about, our conclusion is that not only is this idea philosophically coherent, here's, I think, the real key. This is one of the attributes of God that makes him worthy of worship. And we're going to think about the fact that he has praiseworthy power. Um, if you really appreciate the omnipotence of God, you'll be filled with awe. You will be filled with awe. Your heart, your mind, your life, everything will change. Uh, the material that's presented in the, in the paper, the thing that we've uh, turned in for presentation, uh, we deal with technical ideas there, uh, philosophical issues, philosophical problems. You know, in the, in the paper, we talk about things like there's attacks against the omnipotence of God. People say, well, if God's really all powerful, can he make a, a stone so heavy that not even he can lift it? Or they'll say something like this. Well, if God can really do all things, well, that means he can sin. And if he can't sin, then clearly he doesn't have all powers. Well, those are, those are misunderstandings of what it means to be omnipotent. Uh, God has the power to do all that can be done. God is perfect in power. He's perfect in knowledge. He's perfect in morality. To be God is to be infinite in power. Now, those are concepts we deal with in the paper. I want, to, I want to go beyond that. I don't want to get bogged down in some of those philosophical discussions right now. I want to pick up sort of where the paper leaves off, where the book leaves off, and consider the implications. What are the implications of saying God has all power? What does it mean for us as people, as those living on this earth, as creatures of his? I want you to think about it this way. We're going to start thinking through the idea of God's power as seen in creation. 
God demonstrates his awesome power by the things that he's made. And scripture says that again and again and again. God says, look at what I've made, consider my power, and be in awe. God's created things like the material world, but he's also created people. He's created nations and empires. And God will refer to those things that he's made and say, think about how great and how powerful I am. Let's start with the creation of the world. Psalm 33 is a a passage we have to think about in this context. Psalm 33, I want to read several verses for you. Beginning at verse 6, this is what the Bible says. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters out of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps in storehouses. And so based upon that limitless power, he says, so let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. He has not merely the power to command. And by that I mean, you know, give an order and people follow. That's impressive. We've got military people here. We've... Denny was here, right? Denny gives a command. The students better follow. Yeah. And that's, that's impressive, right? We understand. We want power. We want the kind of power where we say, you go, and you better go. If I say you go, you better say, how high? How high jump? How, how fast should I run? We want that kind of power to command. But God has power that goes beyond that. Not just the power to command to get people to follow, but the power just to speak, and that which didn't exist comes to exist. Nothing becomes something. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. He has the power to speak, and it comes to be. That goes so far beyond the power that we can wrap our hands around. But God says, this is my power, and you should be in awe of it. In Isaiah 40, he continues to talk about the things that he has spoken into existence. And I want you to think about this with me. Isaiah 40, beginning at about verse 25. To whom shall you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? In other words, look at the the stars and the planets in the sky. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Now, let me make a couple of scientific observations based upon this passage. Because what I see happening here, what you understand is happening here in Isaiah 40, is that God basically says this. Consider the heavens, like the psalmist says in Psalm 19.1. Consider the heavens. They demand that you understand and see God's glory and power. Specifically, he mentions the stars. Now, let's, let's think through this scientifically, a few scientific observations. 
When it comes to the stars in the sky, on a good night, I'm told that on a good night, a clear night, the human eye can see somewhere around 4,000 stars. And I hope that you've taken advantage of those opportunities. I know in, in central Kentucky, where we live, that on a good, clear night, way out away from the lights of the city, you can lay back in the green grass and see lots of beautiful, amazing stars. They seem to just go on forever and ever and ever. And yet, we're told we can only see a few thousand of them at a time. And when you come to understand that our galaxy actually has hundreds of billions of stars in it, and our God says, I know every one of them. I've named them. I know where they are. I know when they come to be. I know when they go away. I know them. Every one of them. Now, talk about power from these stars. Every second, let's just think about our star, the star that we're most concerned about, the sun. Our star puts out what I'm told is 385 yoda watts of energy a second. I never heard of that before. But I was told that a yoda watt, one yoda watt, is equivalent to the energy that's out, that's put out by a hydrogen bomb. So in other words, every second, our sun puts out the energy of 385 hydrogen bombs. That's just our sun's power that's being pushed out into this world. When you start to consider that our sun's really just average in the universe, you know, 1.3 million Earths can fit inside our sun. And then there's the idea that the average distance beside, between a star is five light years. That's 29 trillion miles between each star. And there's other stars out there that make our sun look like a baby. There's red giants that are 700 times bigger than our sun. There's red giants that are 14,000 times brighter. And our sun is putting off 385 hydrogen bombs a second. And it's small. Now, here's why I bring up all those scientific facts. Our universe is huge, and it's incredible, and it's powerful, and it seems to us to be limitless. And God looks at it and says, I spoke all that into existence. He says, have you not known, and have you not seen, and have you not heard? That when it comes to these things, when you lift, lift up your eyes and you see the hosts of heaven, know that I've called them out. Know that I've numbered them. Know that I know where they are. And you should say, by the greatness of his might, he is strong in power and not one of them's missing. Amen. That's pretty powerful and pretty impressive. As huge and as awe-inspiring and breathtaking as this universe is, our God's spoken into existence and we should stand in awe. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God's eternal power is seen in what he's made. His power is seen in what he's made. God gives one example of the stars of heaven. What about this? Let's shift a little bit and think about not just the material world that he's made, but the, the people that he has made to be inhabitants of this world that he made. Think about just people individually. He said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were consecrated, before you were born, I consecrated you. He said, I knew you. I know you. Going all the way back to the garden, Genesis chapter 1, where God places Adam there in the garden, creates him from the dust of the ground. And then goes on to say in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that mankind is made in his image. That 
is power. When you look around this room, there's smart men and women in this room, strong, powerful men and women in this room. And the infinite God made us, knew us, formed us. So it's, it's specific individual people, but it's also nations, it's empires. In Isaiah 44, verse 2, he said to, to Israel, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Don't fear. Isaiah 44, 24. I am the Lord who made all things and I'm the one who formed you from the womb. <laughs> then there's this. Israel very often is referred to as uh, the nation that, that God made, right? They're the new nation on the other side of the Red Sea. Whenever you see that God refers to himself as the powerful creator. He also also often says, I'm the one who with that powerful right arm of mine brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. I gave you freedom. And then the people understood that. They would look back and say, when we're thinking about our God who made everything, he also made us. He's the one who gave us the promised land. He's the one who did all these things in his power and wisdom. I want to read a passage to you, Nehemiah 9 where all these things sort of fit together. The Levites, as they're leading the people in the reading of God's word and, and thinking about who God is, it says this in Nehemiah 9, beginning at verse 6. Note the way they'll first connect God's power in making everything to them bringing it down and making it personal, to him making us a people that have a nation to live in here in this promised land. Nehemiah 9, 6. You're the Lord. You alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You made everything. You spoke it into existence. You're the Lord, the God who chose Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and you gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You made him the covenant to give his offspring the land of Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Jebusite, and Gigashite. And you've kept your promise for your righteous. And you saw the affliction of the fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and people of the land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them, so they went through the midst of the sea and dry land. You cast their pursuers into the depths like a stone in mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, pillar of fire by night to light them for the way to which they should go. And you came down to Mount Sinai and spoke with them. And from heaven, you, you gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Then verse 15 is the conclusion. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you'd sworn to give them. In other words, they recognized what a powerful thing had taken place. They equated the power of God with making everything to giving them the promised land. You made us. We're your people. We're, we're formed by you and given these things by you. That's power. God's the one who raises up kingdoms, tears down kingdoms, gives empires, takes empires away. But now let's make it personal. This same God who spoke the world into existence, the same God who gave Israel a place, a home, made them a people, is the same God with that same power who wants to do something for us. The same God 
wants to do something special in our lives. Instead of creating, as it were, all things, what about in 2 Corinthians 5.17 or Galatians 6.15, where it speaks of being a new creation in him? Romans chapter 1, verse 4 speaks of Jesus to be declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And we know Romans 1.16 that says the, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. When it is heard, believed, and obeyed, things happen. Colossians chapter 2, I think, is such a great example of utilizing this power of God in our lives personally. Colossians 2, beginning at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So we saw the power of God in raising Jesus from the dead. But note how that becomes personal for us. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The creator of the world seeks to create something else. The creator of the world uses his power to offer us hope. And so we should be in awe of that and thankful for that and moved by that. And so I want to transition now to a, a way that as we think about this powerful God, the way he speaks the world into existence and the way he speaks to our lives, how should we react? I want to suggest three things in the time that we have. We should tremble before him. We should absolutely trust this one with power. And we should, with all of our hearts, worship this one. Amen. So let's talk about those things. When we're all in awe of God's power, in awe of the one who is so far above even the powerful stars, the one who creates kings and tears down kings, we should tremble before him. In, in reverent fear, knowing that this, this powerful God is a judge. I want you to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah and consider some of these things that Jeremiah shares with us here in chapter 32. Now, what we're going to note among many things here in this passage is that Jeremiah is also going to connect God's power to create with God's power and his determination to judge. You notice how so often in Scripture, in just a few minutes we've been doing this, that again and again and again the prophets and others would say, consider God's great power to make everything. And now consider the implication it has in this part of my life. It's not just that God is this incredible, powerful being who made everything and then stepped away. He's not the God of the deists. He's not the God who, who just made everything and then sits back and just, and just watches his incredible creation. This is a God who, when we see the things he's done with his power, it makes an impact on us. He's doing things now and will do things later. And one of those things is being a judge. Listen to Jeremiah 32, starting at verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who's made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing's too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. 
You've shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind. And you've made a name for yourself as is at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it. Now note this with me. But they didn't obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you've made all this disaster come upon them. Now, among many things I want you to note there in verse 23, one of the major implications of this passage is that the almighty God, the one who spoke the world into existence, has expectations. He makes demands. He's one who says, I will give you this by my powerful right arm, bring you out of slavery, put you into the promised land. But now I have expectations. Now I make demands upon you to glorify me, love me, submit to me, follow me, worship me. I make demands upon your life. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that those who do not obey are judged. That's the, re- that's the reality of the situation. God tells us so in very clear language. Now, that's the first thing that really needs to settle in. But as I consider how powerful God is, it needs to make an impact on my heart that he's making demands of me. And if he can make demands of Adam and Moses and Israel, and then he'll make demands of me too. Right. He's called upon me to know his son, love his son, submit to him, and walk in his ways. And so that's the first thing that I really want to just settle in. That's what's settled in on my mind and my heart. That this powerful God is a judge. But if we stopped there, if I, if I folded up my Bible now and sat down, that would be a pretty not only depressing, but terrifying message. But it doesn't end there. Because though that's the reality, that this powerful God is a judge, it doesn't end there. Because remember, I said the second thing, not only when we know the power of God, should we be in awe and tremble, but we should also be in awe and trust him. Trust this powerful. Let me ask you, who do you want to trust? Somebody who's strong and capable or somebody who's weak and cowardly? If I need somebody to protect me, if I need somebody to keep a secret, if I need somebody to do any of these kinds of things that I deem beneficial to me, what kind of person do I want to put my trust in? Am I going to give someone all my money who I know that they don't like me at all and they're very selfish and, and very willing to go and blow money on all kinds? Or do I want to give my money to someone? I, I trust you. Hold this for me. Keep this for me. Okay. We trust those that not only are trustworthy, but have the power to protect that which we give to trust. So here we should be comforted. In the same passage, Jeremiah 32, note these two verses with me. First, verse 22. You gave them this land. So you, the one who created all things, the one who made the, the promise to bring them out of slavery and into the promised land, you gave them this land which you swore to the fathers to give them. 
you make good on your promise. Because that's what God does. He's a trustworthy God. who, When he makes a promise, he keeps it. Verse 24 is the same thing. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. That sounds terrible, but note the way it's connected to trusting God. What you spoke has come to pass. What you spoke has come to pass. And you see it and we see it and we know it. So the point is this. We can trust him. When he says that X, Y, or Z is the way things are going to be, we can trust that that's the case. And so you and I can trust that, that he'll be the one to save. Every promise of God is a promise that we can trust because he has the power to carry it through. I'm reminded of just my own weaknesses. Let me give you a list of my own weaknesses here. Maybe you'll identify with some of them. God doesn't forget anything. I forget things all the time. But because he never forgets, I can trust him. That when he's made a promise, he won't forget. Oh, I forgot that I told you I would do that. Few things hurt as much as to see somebody that you really care about. And they say, I was counting on you. Where were you? Oh, I forgot. I'm sorry. I, I do love you. I care about you. I forgot. God doesn't forget. In his infinite power, he doesn't forget things. He can't be overthrown. He can't be detained. He can't be derailed. Many, many times, I didn't forget something, but I wasn't able to carry through with what I had promised. I was too weak. Maybe I was literally sick in a bed. Or there was someone who was keeping me. Let me give you just a, a silly example, something that happened just this last week. I had a, a dish, a plate in my office from a beautiful, thoughtful, talented woman at our church who had made cupcakes for us. Well, it's now empty because I ate them all, right? And I was going to give her the dish back. And I had promised her before services started, I'll give you that dish tonight when services are over. Well, one person, two people, three people, I get caught talking. To them. I'm going to get away, get away. And then there's Louie. Oh, I can't get away. I'm going to get away. No, then there's Matt. Can't get away. And she gave up waiting. She went home. I got detained. I got derailed. I promised to give her the plate, and I didn't do it. I wanted to. I really wanted to. Now, that's a silly, small little example. But God doesn't get derailed. God doesn't get detained in ways that he doesn't want to. When he makes a promise, he can't be overthrown. If I can be overthrown in something as simple as giving back a plate, I'm so thankful God can't be overthrown when it comes to anything. He's all-powerful. When he makes a promise that the blood of Jesus cleanses us, Ephesians 1, 7, 1 John 1, 7, when he makes a promise that the blood of Jesus cleanses us, we can trust that promise. When he makes a promise that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, 1 John 1, 9, we can trust that promise. When he promises, when the Lord Jesus promises to return one day, John 14, verse 3, so that we can all be together. That's a promise we can trust. Now, we could continue on at great length, right, listing the promises of God. But I just want you to make this one connection. Because of God's power, 
the one who can speak all things to an exi- into existence. When he speaks a promise, it's a promise that you can trust because of that power. He has the power to keep his promises. Then there's this. So not only is it the fact that when you recognize God's great and infinite power, that you should tremble before him, knowing that, that this judge is, is there and sees and knows We should also trust him that when he makes a promise, that's the way it will be. But I want to end with this. When you come to recognize God's power, you'll want to worship him. You'll be humbled knowing that he is so great. When we accept his power and we finally are truly dependent upon him, our world and our perspective and our hearts will change. Go with me to the book of Job. Make note of about Job 38, where God begins speaking to Job and saying to him, here's, here's the very quick summary. God says, consider my power. Consider the power I had to create the world. And where were you? How powerful are you? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, right? Now, God goes on in much greater detail. He asks lots of probing, humbling questions there to Job. But what he's doing, what God is doing in that exchange with Job is he's highlighting his power. He's highlighting his majesty. And he wants Job to feel the effects of that. And so what's Job do? Job 42. Job 42, verse 1. Job answers the Lord after this barrage of questions. I know that you can do all things. I now know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's uh, Job 42, verse 2. I know you can do all things and nothing that you put into action can be thwarted. Nothing of yours can be overthrown. Your power has humbled me. And so what he does is he repents. You continue reading on there. He prays. He worships, offers sacrifices, not only on behalf of the friends and family, but on behalf of himself. God's power, as it was emphasized to Job, caused him to fall before him in humble worship. Then there's this. Go over to Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar. We know this uh, passage well. We know that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was one that, because of his great power, Nebuchadnezzar had power. Referred to as earthly men are concerned, king of kings. He had been a part of a great and powerful kingdom. But note, downfall and ruin comes when we neglect to acknowledge who's the real king. Daniel 4, at about verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. This is Nebuchadnezzar. The king answered and he said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built. Now, note these words that I've built by my mighty power. I built it by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, 
and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and it is he who gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, praised and honored the one who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The proper response to seeing God's power is to bless him, to praise him. It says, I finally, after I, my reason returned to me, after I realized I wasn't the mighty one, when I finally realized that God is the mighty one, the infinite one, the powerful one, I bless the most high and I praise and honor the one who lives forever. So the proper response to seeing God's power and understanding God's power is to praise him. Amen. Nobody can say, I'll stay your hand. In other words, no one can stay his hand. What that means is you can't keep God from accomplishing his plan. Mm -hmm. right. All the time, our plans are thwarted. All the time, our plans are overthrown. No one is powerful enough to stay his hand. No one's powerful enough to stop his will from being accomplished. Amen. And because of that, the next line there is that it says that no one can, can question what he's done. Whenever something that happens that is hurtful and painful and confusing, which will happen, the answer is not that God has failed. The answer is not that God has done something wrong. The answer is, I just don't understand, and it may be that I've failed. Because we cannot question what he's done. He is good and powerful and wise and does that which is good. So the proper response to seeing and recognizing the power of God is to submit to him and to worship him. Over and over again throughout the Psalms, this this connection between God's power and our praise of him is, is put together. Psalm 21, verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. And we will sing and we will praise your power. Now, God is worthy of praise before he does one single thing for us. It's good and it's right to look back and, and say, look at all the ways in which God has been good to me. It's good and it's right to look back and say, look at all the great things that God has done. But God in his power alone is praiseworthy. And so he says, we exalt you, Lord, in your strength and we sing praises to your power. And where we started much earlier in, in Psalm 33, where it said that God spoke this world into existence. Recall that in Psalm 33, verse 8, 
He says, let all the earth fear the Lord and let all the inhabitants of the world just stand in awe of him. God's power is infinite in measure. God's power is eternal. It'll never weaken. It'll never wane. God's omnipotence should absolutely fill us with awe. And so let let me say this as we close. An appreciation of God's power should just absolutely just blow us away. It should leave us breathless. At times it should leave us speechless. And so when we know that he has this kind of power, let's recall that this God with this power is a destroyer. And he'll be a judge. And he will absolutely destroy those, as it says in Second Thessalonians 1, destroy those who've ignored him, who've given self-glory rather than him. And so knowing that this powerful one will judge should cause us to be filled with awe. Knowing that this powerful creator also offers to save. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Knowing this powerful God has offered to save should fill us with awe. That is the epitome of what is awesome. This powerful God who's infinite sees me, knows me, loves me, and offers to save me. We should be filled with awe. And then this feeling of all should should drive us to worship, should humble us, put us on our knees and praise him and thank him for who he is and what he's done. I close with this verse. Ephesians three, verse 20. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.